All right, if you have a Bible, open it up to rain, uh, Romans, if I can talk. Open it up to rain. Open it up to Romans and the book of James. I was trying to put those two words together. All right, Romans and the book of James. We're going to go back to that since we took a break this morning. Um, I wish, well, hopefully everyone is either listening at home, hopefully. Um, but this is... Uh, we, let's, how do I want to do this tonight? There's a lot of, I've got a lot of different notes and a lot of different things that we're, I'm going to be pulling from to try to pull all of this together. But let's just, let's go to Romans 4. Let's just do that to at least get everything situated. All right. Now, we have been talking about this. Really, everything started for us in Romans chapter 2. All right. When we get to Romans chapter 2, verse 6, and we came across this idea that God you know, is going to judge us according to our deeds, we really had to jump in and figure out how to handle that. And remember, a lot of preachers made the argument that Romans 2.6 is to be taken in a hypothetical way. That if God was to judge us according to our sins, nobody would be able to stand and we would all find ourselves condemned. There were two problems with that theory. Theory number one, the language of Romans 2 did not come across in a hypothetical way. And number two, even if you were to dismiss that in Romans, from Genesis to Revelation, every time judgment is spoken of, it's according to works. All right. This brought up this entire subject of, okay, um, and this is how a lot of others handled it. Yes, you're going to be judged according to your works because your works will prove if you're saved. And if you have enough works, then you prove you're saved. If you don't have enough works, you prove you were never saved. Well, there's a lot of issues with that. Number one. None of us would have any uh, assurance until we die because we would have to die and then hope that we have enough good works to prove that we're saved. Number two, with inadvertently, I know this is not the intention, but you ultimately destroy the entire teaching of justification by grace alone through faith alone because you're basically saying that what's going to show that you're saved is works and without works you're not saved, so therefore what's required for salvation works. You end up in this real circular logical problem. So, we went through all of that. We came up with what we think is a reasonable biblical explanation, but it still brings up this entire issue of justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. However, the Bible speaks of works frequently. How do we make these two come together in a correct way without doing damage to the doctrine of justification? All right? So, we work through that in chapter 2, we get into chapter 3, and I'm going to drive this point home. If you go back to Romans chapter 3, I want to make sure everyone understands this, because there'll be no confusion here. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, all the way down, what is emphasized here over and over and over again is that we are sinners. I look at Romans 3.10, how many people are righteous? How many understand? How many seek after God? All right. We're all gone out of our way that are together become unprofitable. There is how many people do good? None. All right. So I think we can get that we're all sinners. Yes. We're all guilty before God. Everyone should say amen. All right. And so therefore, what's the conclusion of this in verse 20? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, what? No flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We cannot be justified by law, because what does law do? Law reveals our sinfulness. Law reveals that we are guilty before God. All right? So nobody can be justified 
by what we do. We are justified by what Christ did, all right? This idea of what Christ did versus what we can do, all right? Very, very important. So the doctor, so I want to make this very clear. There can be no argument that in the book of Romans, when justification is being spoken of, it's justification before whom? God. There's no question there because all, everything in chapter 3 is dealing with what? Our sinfulness, yes? Okay, so there is no argument. Nobody can question that. Then we come to chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, remember, we, what did, how did we classify chapter 3? Justification explained. And in chapter 4, we came to justification illustrated. And in Romans chapter 4, we, he, he wants to illustrate what he has said about justification, what he has explained about justification, and who's the first person he uses? Abraham. Now, let's just read some of the verses of what we learn about Abraham. Verse 1 of chapter 4. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. All right? So he brings in Abraham. We could ask, well, where does Abraham show up? And I'm not going to go back and review everything we talked about. But he, he wants to know, what did Abraham find in regards to the flesh? Right? Now, there's a lot of different ways of interpreting that, but we get the basic idea. Okay? Verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. In other words, if Abraham could be justified, or if he was justified by works, then guess what? Who could get the credit? He would get the credit. He would be able to say, look what I did, look what I accomplished. All right? But verse 3, what saith the scripture? Abraham did what? believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, what's the, uh, what's the idea between, uh, from that word counted? Accredited or imputed? What was accredited or uh, imputed to Abraham's account? Righteousness. Righteousness. So, how was he declared righteous? By faith. Had nothing to do with what he did. Everybody remember that? Okay. So, what, can, what do we conclude from, just from that little bit of that illustration that he, just, he illustrates the doctrine of justification by showing us that Abraham was declared righteous before he did what two things? Circumcision or offered up Isaac? He was already declared righteous. Why was he declared righteous? By faith. Let's keep that in mind, okay? So, if we just continued in Romans, we could go ahead and really strengthen that view up, right? We could really build that up. But you know, I never let us get away with things that easy, correct? Because what is screaming at us from another section? James is screaming at us, slow down! Because Abraham, he argues, proves something completely different. And now go back to James chapter 2. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of the evening working on and trying to come to a good conclusion. All right? Everybody ready? Let's read it. And then, in fact, he uses two individuals. James uses Abraham and who? Remember the other one he uses? It's a female? Rahab. Abraham is a Jew. Rahab is a... Gentile, so that's interesting. He uses Jew and Gentile. Male and female. 
very interesting, okay? So, um, so it's interesting that James brings these two and he's going to use them. And let's just remind ourselves, verse 14, James 2, 14. What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works." Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by what? Works. When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. So he, James completely ignores what Paul mentions, right? Paul mentions that how is uh, Abraham justified? By faith. He says, no, how was he justified? By works. But what event does he put, jump to? The offering up of Isaac. Verse 22. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now he does mention that in verse 23, but what, what fulfills it? His works. All right, now this becomes lots of questions here. Verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only or not by faith alone. All right. Now, we worked through this. I'm not going to go back through everything that we've covered. We're going to take a step back, and we're going to consider this, all right? And we're going to look at some different views, and I'm going to be using a little bit of uh, some notes from uh, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, uh, definitely a, a reformed, uh, from a Reformed perspective, and we're going to look at how they look at it. Now, I'm going to stop, take it apart, but we're going to consider this, and we're going to struggle through this. Now, we know that for... 2,000 years of church history, let's just make it very, let's just be honest with church history. There's been lots of disagreements on how to rectify this, okay? (laughs) A lot, okay? You go to the church fathers, you're kind of like, wait, what is going on here? Okay, so we have to be acknowledge and embrace the fact we're in a difficult section and, and not be afraid of that. Now, I know sometimes when we go to a difficult section and I start asking questions, uh, you get nervous and you want to give me an answer, but I want you to go through the process to struggle through it so that when we come to an answer, it's one of those, ah, or you may go, oh, no, you're still wrong. Okay, but that's okay. That's okay because we're going to work through this and try to do our best. All right, does that sound good? Everybody ready? Okay, keep James open because we're going to focus primarily on James. It's primarily what I've done here in the notes that I have. And... Um, worked on this a lot, so hopefully we can come through this, all right? Um, how do I, where do we want to begin this? Um, I'll start right here. They, they, they have some quotes from the Westminster Confession, and they go, they go through a long a part here, but I don't want to start with any of that. Um, 
They say, uh, not the least of these, they talk about how that some passages of Scripture are difficult and how some people, you know, take the Scriptures and twist them to their own destruction. And we know that there's a possibility of twisting Scripture to our own destruction. They mention this, okay? And we would agree with that. We've talked about that. They say that uh, when you talk of all the Scriptures that can be difficult to understand, not the least of these is the less clear passage found in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14 with a specific focus on verse 21. Now, this is the questions they ask. What does James mean when he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? How do we understand this in light of what the Apostle Paul says about justification in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 5? which we've already just read. They're like, wait, so they're starting from the perspective of James and working their way back to Romans. We started in Romans and worked our way to James. Either way, if you study James, guess what you have to go study? Romans, and if you're studying Romans, guess what you have to study? James, why? Because they use Abraham, both uses Abraham for their own perspective. And the same words. And very good. Very, same words. So wh- how do we handle this? All right? Now, th- I'm glad they're asking those questions. I, I love questions. All right? Um, now, this is what they're going to claim. I'm, I'm, I may disagree with this, but we'll at least go with their claim. Everybody ready? I'm not going to read Romans 4 again and James 2 because they have it all listed here and we've already read that. So here's what they claim. We essentially have three major positions from which to choose when we come to interpret James 2, 14 through 26. They say we have three positions. We'll see if we have three. I think we may have more, but we'll go with three. All right? Are you ready for their, what they believe are the three views that you can basically choose from? All right? or that there, I, I think the better way to word it, three views that have been used. Is that a better way of wording it? I don't think these are three you can choose because some of them I don't believe are... <laughs> I don't believe you can choose from, okay? All right, but you'll, you'll see why. Here we go. View number one. James and Paul contradict one another. All right, we don't believe that. Everybody say amen. We, now, we may have believed that from the surface they appear to contradict each other, but the reason we don't believe they contradict each other is because we believe all Scripture is given by inspiration, right? right? God breathed, okay. So we, we can't accept that one. So, we can throw that one out, agree? There can't be a contradiction. There can be an apparent contradiction, and we have to acknowledge when it appears to contradict, right? I don't like when we say, oh, sometimes this is the way, oh, can't be a contradiction. We have to at least acknowledge it appears to be a contradiction and then work to resolve it. We can't just say, well, they can't contradict and don't care. We have to say, they can't contradict, but it appears to be, now we've got to resolve it. It's our job to resolve it. Does that make sense? Do I? Like the explanation in Genesis on the two accounts of the creation. Right, yeah. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's some things that don't make sense. So we have to acknowledge there's a problem. Genealogies between Matthew and Luke. We got to look and go, hmm, what do we do here, right? I mean, there's lots of situations. You have lots of problems in kings and chronicles with numbers not making sense. And you're like, wait, I thought this king was dead. Where did he come from? Right, we ha- those are things we have to be willing to acknowledge exist. If we don't acknowledge that they appear to contradict, atheists and skeptics will say, 
Yeah, you're ignoring the facts. We've got to be willing to address. And when you read this, you've got to ignore. If, if this was simple, there wouldn't be 2,000 years of church history of arguing over it. Agree? Okay. So there's view number one. What's view number two? James and Paul. Now listen carefully to how this is worded. James and Paul are together teaching that our standing before God is based on our faith in Christ and our good works. James and Paul are together teaching that our standing before God is based on our faith in Christ and our good works. That's view number two. Our standing before God is based on what two things? And our good works. Now, what is this position also known as? Oh, see, I, that's interesting that you said that. Because I think it, I think it does kind of go in that category. But guess how they label it? What do you think? Roman Catholic. Yeah. And this is, in some ways, the Roman Catholic position. But what they don't realize is, you're right, there are some Protestant positions who kind of say the same thing. What is your standing before God based off? Faith. But if you don't have good works, then your faith is dead. So what do you need to have a right standing before God? Now, I know people will say, no, 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 that's not what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. When you go to Jonathan Edwards, what did, remember we looked at Jonathan Edwards? How many tests did he give to determine if you're saved? Eleven. And you go through that test and you're kind of like, well, I don't do that one perfectly. I don't do that one perfectly. I don't do that one perfectly. And so then what do you have to do with the test? Well, this is what you're supposed to do, but no one does it perfectly. So then how do I know if I pass the test? Now, some would say 1 John has those tests, but we have to deal with 1 John at a later time. Right now, we're trying to deal with this. So, just please note, that's, that's the position most people kind of, they don't want to state it the Catholic way, but there's very, a, very much a Catholic essence to it. Hey, Diane, you have faith? All right, that's great. Hey, faith saves you. Oh, but, however, what else do I need to see? You see some good works. Got to see some good work. Oh, wait, look, Diane, you're, you're, you're kind of lacking in this good work. You're kind of lacking. I don't know if you're ever saved. That, 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 and what does that attack? Justification by faith alone. Christ alone. Because, because what, is, what, is, what should be where I look? Christ did. So just make sure this position, even though they label it the Catholic one, there's just kind of a modified, I call it modified Catholicism, right? As someone who has studied Catholicism, went to a Catholic university to get a degree in Catholic theology, sometimes when I hear Protestants talk, I'm like, I learned that in the Catholic university. We just, they just used it a diff, different phrase. We, we just play a little game of semantics, right? Well, you're not saved by works, but if you're saved, you have works. But if I don't have works, then you're never saved. What's required? Yeah. So it, it's just we're modifying it a little bit. All right. But now that still may be a position. We have to at least consider that position. I just want to make sure you realize it's labeled typically as Catholicism. But it sounds if you've been familiar with Lordship Salvation, it sounds very similar to that concept, which we, you know, I, I very much was a major proponent of it. Now I have some struggles there. All right. Number three. Now This one is where not everyone agrees with this one. Well, most people agree with two, they would just modify the language. Everybody understand that? Nobody agrees with one. 
except lost people. Two, Catholics will agree with it. Protestants will agree with it if we can change the language a little bit. Position three, Paul is talking about our standing before God and James is talking about our justification before men. That's position number three. Everybody hear that? Okay, okay. I will read it again. I want to make sure I give you their words, and then I can put it in my words here in a minute. And again, this is the one we're kind of work, we're trying to prove this one, and I'm not, I'm not going to say we're going to be able to, I don't know we can prove any of these points specifically. But number three, Paul is talking about our standing before God. James is talking about our justification before men. Now, there is no question that Paul is talking about our, our standing before God. Can, no, one can, no one disagrees on that. It's clear. James, the problem is, there's certain parts of James where you can go, I can kind of see it, but then you could go to some other parts, and you're like, wait. Um, someone pointed out to me, like if you look at the first part of James, it's very true. He talks about what is true, pure religion before God. So there is a before God part in James. We can't deny that. Yes? But what do we, I, I, think of it this way. Hey, Diane, your religion before God, it's not pure. You need to fix your religion before God because it's flawed. That's different than saying, hey, Diane, you're not justified before God. Does that make sense? In other words, God may be dissatisfied with my spiritual life. I may be in sin, but does that affect my justification? Or, or do, do I begin to then... How do I look at one's justification? So, let's state that view again. What's this view? Paul is talking about our standing before God, and James is talking about what? Our justification before men. In other words, this is how, now this is how they take it. Paul is talking about justifying faith in the divine court, and James is talking about saving faith before the human court. Now, guess what they label this position as? The Protestant position. That's interesting, because not all Protestants agree with that position. But not even all Reformed people agree with this position. Okay? In any way, shape, or form. Right? So, that's kind of, it's kind of interesting that they label one Catholic, and I'm like, well, that Catholic one is very Protestant, and they label this one, which is not accepted by most Protestants, as being the Protestant one. Now, are they saying this is the Protestant one historically? I don't know. That don't give me any, any argument there. But please note those positions. So everybody knows those three options. What is option number one? Contradiction. Option number two? Yeah, you've got to have what two things to be saved? Faith and works. If you don't have works, you're not saved. All right? Now, they, they're, now, they've argued from the Catholic position. Make sure the Catholic position is you need both to be saved. Protestants reword it. You're saved by faith, but if your faith don't produce works, then your faith is not real, therefore you were never saved. So how are you going to ultimately know you're saved? You've got to keep looking at your works. And, and someone could have works for 15 years, and then the 16th year say, and stop doing works, then does that now prove that they were never... So now, when, how could you ever have true assurance? Not until you get your works ultimately looked at. Yeah, and that raises all kinds of questions, right? Because what works, what works, when I stand before God, I, I, don't want, I, I don't like this idea, well, you're going to be judged according to your works. God's going to look at your works and that's going to prove you're saved. No, I want God not looking at my works. 
I want to look at, look at the finished work of his son, his perfect and passive obedience accredited to my God. That's what I want him to look at. Not my works. That would be horrible. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. A profitable faith. Faith. Okay. Yeah. Now that I would, we would have to make that a different position. But I see what you're saying. We'll we'll we'll, we'll come back to that and, and and do that. In fact, I got an email literally right before we uh, went live from someone basically offering that what you just said. Going, hey, I've been struggling with what you've been saying, and I've reread James, and that's kind of what they pointed out. But we'll we'll get to there. Okay. That keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Okay, I'll read the sentence again. Paul is talking about justifying faith in the divine court. James is talking about saving faith before the human court. Right. Which would put us all in trouble. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about um, the law of freedom. Actually, it might be uh, verse 125. Okay. You look at the perfect law of freedom, mm-hmm. perseveres in it. Um, so what is this law of freedom? It's this expectation of mercy from God, even though you aren't completely obedient. Right. So to me, it appears that he's saying that if you do not show mercy, how will you receive mercy from the Lord? And Jesus said the same thing. Right. Right. Um, so, so with that, the, oh, the, the stumbles in one point breaks all points doesn't necessarily make me think of interpersonal relations with other people because then you have the problem, well, if I break one law to my brother, do I break every law to my brother? Okay. So I, I think oh, I see what you're saying. So that part you say puts it back being before God. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. So, okay, all right. No, that's that. That's a good. That's a good point. We're gonna, we're going to work through this and see where it goes. But please note, th- this is going to be the struggle. I mean, everyone's going to go and you, you, everyone's going to be able to say, "Oh, look at this!" And look, it's going to be a, a difficult thing. But that's the beauty of trying to, to struggle with it. I mean, it's God's word. That's the beauty of trying to figure it out. And that's. I'm glad we have a place where we can do this. We can ask these kinds of questions, right? So let's see what we discover. Are you ready? Let's see where they go. All right. First thing they have is context. They're going to go with context. Everyone likes to... Now, this is one good thing I love about the Reformed world. We love that word context. We try to find context. But please note, everyone can find context to try to support what? Their position. All right? Okay. So, let's see, let's see what context they want us to look at. All right? Let's see what context they want us to look at. And they've already told us what they think is the Protestant position. And obviously, if they think it's the Protestant position, they think it's the biblical position. So, what we're getting ready to get is their argument for that third position. Sarah's offering a possible modification of the third position, which would be a fourth position, but we'll see if we go with where, and I kind of offered it as well, but we'll see. Here's a go. Here's what they have to say. As with everything in the Bible, 
context is king. Just as the three laws of reality are location, 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 the three laws of biblical interpretation are context, context, context. Right? That's a very common thing with Reformed people to say. Right? Now, please note, um, context, context, context. Uh, just please note, just because someone says that doesn't mean you're going to end up with the right conclusion. What's, what, uh, one of the schools I went to was uh, Family Radio School of the Bible with a person by the name of Harold Camping as my professor. And Harold Camping went wacko and predicted that the world would end in 1994 and then predicted it would end again in 2003. He was reformed. He was an amillennialist. And he believed in context, 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 context. And he believed scripture interprets scripture. And where did we end up? I can bring you the book, 1994, crazy prediction that the world was going to end. And then it, it, it ended sad. It ended sad. He ultimately had a stroke and then he died. And he, he kind of realized he had been wrong, but it was so sad because he was this, you know, only believed in the Bible, scripture alone, reformed, believed in, and, and it just started going crazy. I'm, I'll never forget when he made the prediction. I was like, what is happening here? What is going on? What is going, he was the one who, he's the one who brought me, he's the one who really led me to the Reformed faith. And then, gone. Well, and, and while he was saying scripture alone, scripture, and no matter what you tried to prove to him about his crazy system of eschatology, it was this mixture of amillennialism with allegorical interpretation from the, it was crazy. No matter what you brought to him, what would he say? That's not what the scriptures teach. Context, context, context. So, context, 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 scripture, just please note, we all can do what? Use it to mm, twist until we get what out of it? What we want. And so, just always remember that. It sounds good, but we'll see where this ends up. All right. Related to this principle, so what's the first principle they want us to understand? Context, context, context. Related to this principle is the Reformation principle of Scripture is its own interpreter. <laughs> I like that in theory. You know how I struggle with that. We say Scripture is its own interpreter, but who's really the own interpreter? Wait, because what do we do with it? Right? I can, I could, I can grab any passage in James right now. I could hand it to Diane and say, take a piece of paper and write out your interpretation. I could go here, here, and then wait at 30 minutes collect all the papers, come up here, and guess what I'm probably going to find? Maybe not heresy, but I'm going to find different interpretations, right? Now, why does that happen? Because the reader, just by, just from a logical perspective, ourself gets put into the interpretive process. It's not like Scripture is its own interpreter. It's not like we just sit there and read it, and then all of a sudden here we have, here's the interpretation. Sometimes we just get told, like James just tells us what he thinks about Abraham, right? So do we, we have to interpret what James wrote, correct? So we're involved in the process. I know what they're trying to say, that our interpretation needs to come from the Scriptures, but we are doing what? We're standing outside of them, correct? separated by 2,000 years or more, far more in Old Testament, and then we take it and we read it, and then what do we do? We weave our thinking, our presuppositions, our theological systems, 
we read that into it. That's how come I, I went to a Catholic uh, you know, university. There would be the priest interpreting scripture. Wouldn't be my interpretation. Right? And you say, well, they just don't know what they're talking about. Well, they don't think we know what we're talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so just, uh, all right, but we can get in there. All right. We will only have, we will only and ever come to a right understanding of James 2.21 when we have first carefully considered its immediate context and then the Old Testament context from which James draws. All right. So what, did, what two things do they say we need to get a right understanding? Con- the immediate context and the Old Testament context. Right? Everybody got that? At the beginning of the epistle, James introduces the concept of testing. Right? Do we see that in James chapter 1? James chapter 1, verse 2, My brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith. All right? So they want us to see that as the context. They want us to see this testing of our faith. Would everyone say that it's at least there in chapter 1? All right? In chapter 2, sincerity of faith is in view. All right? In other words, how sincere your faith is. Would everyone agree that that's possibly a part of chapter 2? Yes, no? Well, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1 and through following, what's, what are they going after in chapter 2, verses 1 through following? Favoritism, right? Don't play favorites. Agreed? And then starting in 14, faith without works, and what uh, uh, examples does he use? Well, if you have faith and you have someone who needs something, you don't help them, then your faith is what? Not very, they're, they're going to use the word sincere. I'm going to use the word not very profitable, right? That's what Sarah was in, insinuating, and I think there's some uh, truth to that, all right? Uh, chapter 1 ends with James saying, whoever thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, this one's religion is useless. Is that a fair way of describing the end of chapter 1? Y'all can look. Tell me if you agree or disagree. Verse 26. Does he say your religion is useless? Vain. Meaningless? Useless? Dead. Okay, NIV says dead. Right? Now, and why, why, why is it meaningless or useless? Because guess what? You have faith, but your tongue is not being bridled, right? So therefore it's useless or meaningless as far as doing what? Controlling what you say. That, that's their, their argument, all right? As chapter 2 develops, the idea of evidencing whether or not one has saving faith comes to the forefront. Please note they put evidence. All right, now this is interesting because they're going to slide back into, into, into uh, view number 2 if, if, you're not, if they're not careful. In order for someone to show whether or not they have saving faith, he or she must be tested. All right? In other words, if, what's going to prove ultimately if you have what you claim? Some kind of test to put you in a position where you have to demonstrate it. Right? If, if, if I want to know right now if Joel's paying attention to this sermon, I could give him a test. And then we'll know the genuineness of his listening. Right? Agreed? 
Okay, y'all want me to do that? Okay, okay. No, Joel says no, okay. Everyone else says yes, okay, but I know I wouldn't do that to you, right? So I, th- I think we can kind of see a little bit of that, right? Uh, related to the idea of testing, the context of James 2.21 also carries with it the idea of sincerity with regard to saving faith. This is the flip side of the coin. The pastoral question that James is dealing with is whether or not someone has saving faith versus a mere intellectual profession of faith, which he essentially calls a demon faith and a dead faith. Right? They're going to quote from another commentary here. Um, Helps us better understand the context of James. Use of the word justified. This is what the commentary that they're relying on here, this is what it says. James assumes that his readers are quite familiar with Paul's formulation of the doctrine of justification. But some of James' hearers were using the doctrine of justification by faith alone as a pretext for being complacent about ungodly living. What better way to awaken them than by using words that at first glance seem to be a shocking departure from what they have been taught? James 2 is a bombshell that explodes carnal confidence at its foundation. The complacent can scarcely be moved by anything else. All right? So what they're arguing is that, hey, what he's doing, here's these people who understand the doctrine of justification, and what have they become? Eh, do whatever I want. And what they, this commentary they're quoting, is arguing that James comes in with very bombastic language to shock them out of their complacency, to make them go, oh no, wait, what's going on? All right? That still doesn't give me a good answer, but I, I can understand that maybe there's, there's some um, argument for that. Now, this is what they say. All of this leads naturally into the testing and faith demonstrating of Abraham and Rahab. Okay? Now, here they get, here's their observation. So they gave us the context. So basically, what context are they arguing? That James is making an argument that faith to be shown genuine has to be tested. And he's giving us, here's some tests to determine if faith is genuine. Now, this is, now listen, this can lead back to uh, view number two, can it not? If you say the faith is not genuine, then you're saying that without these, you're not saved. Therefore, what do you need to be saved? These, these evidences. Now, what do you mean by not saved or what do you mean not justified? That, they still haven't really answered that question, right? What does James mean when he's referring to being justified? Well, let's see what they do here. Now they go from their, uh, their context to observations. I'm going to try to hurry. Maybe we're going to run out of time. When we come to consider James' statement about Abraham and Rahab, we must first understand something of, its, of his rationale for singling out these two figures. In the first place, both Abraham and Rahab are singled out in James 2 as examples of diverse individuals who possess saving faith. First, Abraham was a man, Rahab was a woman, in Christ Jesus there is neither male or female. Second, Abraham was a Jew, Rahab was a Gentile. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ. All right, that's fine. That's a good observation. That doesn't really help us with the question, but it's a good observation. Um, In the second place, both Abraham and Rahab were tested before a watching world by their test being written in Scripture for our example. 
All right. So this is what they say. Abraham, what does James focus on? The test that Abraham experiences, right? And then that test is used as an example for what? Everyone, because it's placed where? In Scripture. And so what justification, now, I don't know if they're going to go this far, but I'm going to throw out this language. Um, His justification, then is his actions justify him before whom? All of us. Because he was already justified before God by faith. That's the argument I think they're, they're getting rid of. And they say the same with Rahab. What, do they, what does James focus on in Rahab? Look at James 2. What does he focus on with Rahab? What she did, right? She received the messengers, look at verse 25, and had sent them out another way. Right? So what do they focus on? She is justified by works, but they focus on what she did. And what she did is placed in Scripture. So in other words, she, she came to a very difficult situation, a test. She acted a certain way, and by her actions, she is justified. They're arguing justified before whom? Us and our reading of it. That, that's kind of the argument they are making. They're not going to state it in that precise way, but that's where they're definitely headed. All right, let me read that again. There is, um, in, um, in the second place, both Abraham and Rahab were tested before a watching world by their tests being written in Scripture for our example. For Abraham, the test was, he was put, um, for Abraham, the test to which he was put came 25 to 30 years after he believed the promises of God. He believed the promises of God about Christ in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. He then offered Isaac the one through whom the seed promised were to be initially fulfilled in Genesis 22. There there was a one-time test upon which James fixates our attention. There is nothing in the context, listen, there is nothing in the context that would suggest that James is speaking of an entire life of law-keeping, as some mistakenly say he teaches. Now that's interesting. They're going with, hey, it's not that he did everything right all of this time, but he passed this one test. Well, James only focuses on one test. So now, if you're not careful, you see where this leads. How many tests do you need to pass to prove you're saved? One. (laughs) Yeah, how about all the tests he failed? He failed a lot of tests. Right. Especially if it's before God. Right. Especially if it's before God. Okay. So that's interesting. He, he, he wants to make sure they draw a distinction. Hey, he, this is not a life of passing test. This is one test. Okay. I think there's, I think we, I think you're right. We could go to, from Genesis 12 all the way up to that point. He failed a, lo- a number of tests. He lied, straight out lied to protect himself and put other people at risk. So that definitely was some failure. But he had already been counted what? Righteous, even though he failed those tests. Okay. Um, the law was not, uh, and, and then they point this out, the law was not even given to God's people until 400 years after Abraham lived. The scriptures are clear that Abraham believed God and in one definitive moment, he was accounted it to him for righteousness. One definitive moment. That's the way we believe justification works, right? James is telling us, so where does it go? Um, 
James, James is telling us that the declaration made in Genesis 15 was demonstrated to be true of Abraham and that he endured the test by faith. Abraham evidenced his saving faith and justifying faith by his act of obedience. All right? Um, now they're going to talk about Rahab here in a minute. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to jump down here because they're going to go to all, basically saying the same thing about Rahab. Hey, when did she show this? In this one test. In this one test. Now, here's where we're going to get into the interesting discussion. When we, cons- when we come to consider James' use of the word justify in chapter 2, verse 21, one massively important interpre- in- interpretive must be understood. All right? So one interpretive key must be understood here. The word justify and its various forms is used several different ways in Scripture. What determines how it is used? Context. All right, everybody got that? It is true that the majority of Pauline uses of justify have to do with the legal forensic standing that men have before God. Jesus, however, uses the word in Luke chapter 7 to denote evidence when he said of his own works bearing evidence to who he was, wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, Jesus said, I am shown to be who I am and who I say I am by the works that I do. This seems to be the exact same usage as that is found in James 2. In fact, in the context, James says, you show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It is clear that the human court is in view in James 2. In Romans 4, however, where the Apostle Paul says, for if Abraham were justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The divine court is clearly in view. The 19th century Scottish theologian James Buchanan kind of tried to show a difference between justified in Paul and justified in James by the use of, and here are the terms he used, actual justification and declarative justification. Actual justification and declarative justification. That's in the 19th century. All right. Accordingly, Paul speaks of actual justification before God, and James speaks of declarative justification before men. The late John Murray, perhaps even more helpful, used the term declarative and demonstrative. Murray put declarative in the place where Buchanan had used the term actual and demonstrative where Buchanan had used declarative. Murray suggested that Paul refers to declarative justification and that James speaks of demonstrative justification. Under this explanation, God declares one righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. And the one who has been declared to be righteous then demonstrates this that he or she is so by observable good works. This slides back over into view two, unless you're saying he does those good works to be observed by men. It depends on how they describe this. J. uh, J. Gresham 
summed up the difference between the two justifications this way. The faith which James is condemning is a mere intellectual assent which has no effect upon conduct. The demons also, he says, have the sort of faith and yet evidently they are not saved, James 2.19. What Paul means by faith is something entirely different. It is not a mere intellectual assent to propositions, but an attitude of the entire man by which the whole life is entrusted to Christ. In other words, the faith that James is condemning is not the same as the faith that Paul is commending. All right, there, there's some truth there. All right, then they, they, they come close. Then here at the warning, they give a warning about be very careful with James too, or you will jeopardize the gospel itself. Now, I agree there. All right, so they didn't really give us, you, you see what they kind of did there. Hey, actual versus demonstrative, you know, like they're breaking these two kind of justific- justifications down. So here are the questions I want you to write down. I want you to think about, are you ready? All right. Is it possible, I'm going to throw this out as, is it possible? Is it possible that James and Paul are speaking of two different justifications? Now, I know there's going to be some who say they are not, but at least let's ask the question, is it possible? Paul is focused on what justification? For God. There's no debate there, right? Everyone agrees with that. Nobody disagrees with that. Now, with James... Is he talking about a justification that makes our faith real or evidence it before men? If we say no, James is talking about our justification before God. Where, where, what problems arise from that? Let's go through them. What problems arise from that is this. Go back to James. All right. Go back to James. This kind of things, this these are the kinds of things that would happen. All right. Hey, um, how do we, how do uh, how, how do you know your justification before God is real? How do you know if James is talking about our justification before God? This is how it would work. We're gonna we'll use Diane as the as the test case. So here comes in Diane. She's like, Hey, Pastor, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm saved. I just don't know. I don't know. I'm like, Okay, Diane, um, we're gonna we're gonna fix this really quick. All right. Hi, uh, Diane, are you a doer of the word? Are you? All the time? Okay. Now, so right there, what do we end up with? When you say a doer of the word. What do you mean by a doer of the word? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, they kind of reduced it to one test because they acknowledged that Abraham didn't pass the test all the time. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah. Right, exactly. And they were big tests, I agree. But so do I look for one big test in your life or how do I work it? But if I start going through here, you know where I'm going to start going through, right? Okay, I'm going to just start naming all of these things. Hey, um do you do you bridle your tongue? Now, I could probably right now ask Libby. I could probably call Bobby and say does Diane bridle her tongue all the time? Okay, I'm getting a look from Libby that is an absolute no. Okay, I could probably ask Joel about his mom. I'm getting a head, I'm getting a head shake, right? Okay, in fact, the best way to know how religious the, the Christian parents are is to ask the Christian kids, okay? Just call the kids aside and you find out all kinds of things. I remember when Becca was in Sunday school and then one, after church, the pastor brings us aside and says, hey, I just heard you and your wife are getting a divorce. I'm like, what? 
when are we getting a divorce? Well, no, we're not having any issues. Like, well, Becca and Sunday school. Okay. Don't listen to my kids in Sunday school, okay? So when your kids tell me things, I usually just kind of go, yeah, okay, whatever, okay? But, but because I know that they're probably using it for their own advantage. But if I go through this, do you see where we're going to go, right? In other words, I pull all of these things out, and what, do I, what am I going to do? I'm going to be able to use these as a test. And these tests are going to put you in what kind of position? What, what are we going to ultimately do? Well, we're going to have to, we're going to clearly know you're not going to do these perfectly. But what, what, you see where we're sliding into view number two? What, what do I, what does Diane need to be saved? Faith and works. Now we're going to say, because we're Protestant, well, my, my works don't save me. My faith saves me. But however, if my faith doesn't produce works, then my faith is not real. Therefore, without works, I'm not saved. And you end up in this, like, when you say that to Catholics, they kind of, I mean, you, li- you've, you listen to Catholic radio. You've heard it. They're kind of like, you're saying what we say. You say what we say. And you're like, well, no, we say it differently because we say that our faith produces the works. But you're, like, you're, but you're saying without the works, you're not saved. So guess what they're saying? Without the works, you're not saved. Now, they have a, a very con- convoluted system, right? Because now you can commit certain sins that put you outside of a state of grace, and then you've got to get back into a state of grace. And then if you die in a state of grace, you go to purgatory, which then has to be purged. Then maybe you can get to heaven. And though there's also... Uh, you know, penance, and then you can get indulgences that will take away your time. And it's like you need to be a math, mathematical genius to figure it out. We just try to make it simple, but it's not simple if you take it. Remember what what caused Luther problems? The Catholic system caused Luther, Luther major problems. Remember what he used to do? He used to spend how forever in the confessional booth, right? He used to confess, 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 confess. They're like, could you go away? But he's like, wait a minute. I'm never going to be good enough. Well, if you get into an evidence-based system, you'll never feel like you're going to have enough evidence to do what? To be good enough. And if I go through this, and I, if we go through this saying, hey, what James is saying, look, Diane, if you have faith, you've got to prove it to me. And not just to me, you've got to prove it for God. So if we make it before, now if we take that concept away and say, what does your faith do? Your faith, your, or your, what does your works do? Your works justify your faith before whom? That's a whole different thing, right? Because you're, you can tell me all day that you have faith, James 2. What good does that do? What good is it for you to tell Libby that you have faith, but you don't act like it? Before Libby, you don't, you're not justified. Before me, you're not justified. But what, what, am I, what, what, what is my confidence based on? My standing before God, which is what is based off what? Work of Christ. Now, if we make it before God, you see where you come into I, I agree that there is language in James. I, please don't dis... There is language in James that makes me want to go, because I used to teach it. I, I could go back to the sermon I preached right before I was ordained. In, in Nebraska, where I preached on James, and I basically said, hey, everyone in this church, you're lost! Because faith without works is dead, and I haven't seen works in anybody here! I, I pretty much just let the whole church have it. Right? Because I was tired of not seeing what I w- thought was supposed to be the evidence that was supposed to be seen, because I didn't see the evidence. Well, 
Now, maybe, is there a possibility that there, yeah, I mean, clearly there's a possibility of someone not truly being saved, but you see that creates a very works-based mentality. So if we put it that way, then what's the works based off, what's the works justify you from? In the front of people, if, if that view is correct. So I'm just saying, is that possible? If we put it that works justify you before God, then what do you create? Right. Now, there's a third view that they did not mention, or what would be the fourth view. And that's what Diane or Sarah was mentioning. And I just can do this briefly. In, uh, in the book of um, Hebrews, we talked about this last week. In the book of Hebrews, we have all these people who are in the, what they, we call the Hall of Faith, correct? And this Hall of Faith is put there for whose benefit? Ours, not for God, right? God doesn't need to, to write it down. But they're all, all, and for every person it says by faith, and then what does it say? Or what does it describe? Something they did. And what they did demonstrated their faith before whom? Right, there are a great cloud of witnesses, right? We, they, we, they, we witness their faith. Their faith is demonstrated before us. Not be, because listen, Abraham's faith was already declared, made him, was, his faith was accounted unto him for righteousness before he did an action. Yes? Therefore, it can't be the action proves the faith because Abraham was already declared righteous before he committed the action. So the action proves what? It proves before us that his faith was genuine. His failure didn't prove his faith not genuine, but his failure would have proven to what? To other people. Other people would have been like, fake, fake, fake. Before God, God already knew his faith was genuine. Yes? So the timeline here is essential. So could it be, I'm going to ask, so what's my first question? Could it be that what James is talking about is a justification before men and not before God? And number two, is it possible that what James is saying, and this is kind of a separate view, that our works prove that our faith is profitable, that our faith demonstrates a pure religion, that our faith is useful, now, that's saying kind of this, the first question, but I'm just stating it in a different way. Because James 2 talks about profit, right? Yes. Profit, profitable, profitable. And he gives all these illustrations about profitable, right? If you do this, if you don't do this, if you do this, it leaves, it's, is your faith profitable to anyone? If it's not profitable, then what is it? Dead or useless? So, those are your, here's your three options. You ready? And we'll end with this. Three options. Option one. James is talking about your justification before God and what proves your justification before God is you doing good. And if you do enough good, then you prove that you are saved. If you don't do enough good, you prove that your, your faith is dead. That sounds good, but it creates the never-ending problem of having to know what? How much good? How do I quantify the good? How do I demonstrate the good? And, and, Jay, and Abraham, the example he used, Abraham himself proved, he, he failed more tests than he passed. The one test that they, they, they brag about is, came after a bunch of failures. So, 
How do, how do you work that? It raises lots of questions. But that's the one that people typically, the typical Protestant way is, hey, Diane, you claim you have faith. I don't see your works. So you know what you need to know? Your faith is dead. You're going to die and go to hell. You need to get true faith. And when you get true faith, then you'll do all these things. I don't, I don't like that. Con- you see where I struggle with that concept. View number two. Hey, Diane, you've put your faith in Christ. Guess what? You're, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Your salvation is based on what Christ did. You trust in him. There's your salvation. However, without works, you're demonstrating to me that your faith is dead. To me. Because I can't speak about your faith before God. I, I, that becomes very quiet. Or third, what can I say? Hey, Diane, you have faith, but your faith is not profitable. Faith is not doing anything for anyone. It's dead. You're not helping anyone. You're not doing anything. So what are the three views again? We'll end with this. View number one, James is talking about a justification before God. And what, how do you prove you're justified before God? By your works. Everybody understands the problems that comes up to, right? I can bring, I played, how many different times on my podcast did I play sermons from people going with that view? And I said, listen to it. And when you were done, you had the test written down. And when, you, when we looked at the test, what did we conclude? Yeah. Or you have to grade on a curve. Well, you're not going to do it perfectly, but you have to do it some. Number two. Faith before, uh, faith before God and your works are justify you before men. View number three, faith before God is how you're saved. Your works do what? Prove your faith is profitable. We're just going to kind of separate that out. It's saying very similar to the second one. Those are the three basic concepts. Justification before God or justification before men or he, James is just trying to show you your faith is not profitable before men. Does that make sense? Those are your three views. Is anyone in this room going to agree? Probably not. What do we, what, in our disagreement, what is the one, uh, one non-negotiable? We are justified before God by faith alone, Christ alone, period. Do not destroy that. These other things we may, we all agree, everyone in this room agrees that if you're saved, we need to live out our Christian life. Amen? Yes. We need to demonstrate that our faith is real by our, our actions. We may disagree. You may say, well, that proves that person's not saved. I'm never, I'm not going to go there because who am I to know? Remember, what, what was my policy with my kids? I never told them they were saved. Because guess what I couldn't say? I can't speak. I don't know that. Guess what I do with you guys? I have to take your profession of faith. And if your actions don't live up to that, then that's where church discipline can come in. But first, you confront, you ask for repentance. But I can't come along and say, not saved. Paul didn't even do that to the guy in 1 Corinthians, right? Who uh, was sleeping with his uh, stepmother. He didn't even say he wasn't saved, Right? He said, turn him over to save for the destruction of the flesh. Hoping for what? To repentance and to come back. Paul didn't say, hey, he failed the test. I don't see enough evidence. He's not saved. Don't worry about him. No, he treated him as a believer. Turned him over to save for the destruction of the flesh. And then in 2 Corinthians, there seems to be an indication that the man repented and wanted back. And then the church wouldn't let him, back, wouldn't let him come back. And then like, hey, 
Okay. Yeah, enough of you. Paul didn't say, hey, the way to do this. He's just not saved. He didn't pass a, a test. You think he would have failed the test. Agreed? All right. We'll have to stop there. All right. Those are three views. You can, you can struggle with it. Please note, don't struggle with the, like, don't disagree with each other. Just remember, we can struggle with that because we have one thing in common. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That is non-negotiable. The minute someone attacks that, then we have to have a disagreement. Does that make sense? All right. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Whew, that was a lot of hard work, Lord. I pray that there was some benefit from that. Um, we, we, we at least listened to another, another position, another view, another way of trying to articulate this. I hope it was beneficial tonight. I hope it will give us at least some, some idea that no matter how difficult Romans and James may appear, there are people out there who've tried to work these systems out throughout church history. We've tried to offer our own view. I pray that you would give us the, the hunger and desire to spend some more time with this. But Lord, let us just leave here tonight knowing this, that no matter what view we come up with, there's not a person in this room who should place any confidence in their flesh, any confidence in anything that they have done, will do, or could do. Their only hope is the finished work of your son, his passive and active obedience being accredited to our account. Our hope is in what Christ did and what he did alone. Let us cling to the cross and nothing else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Whew.